From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. The New York Times has published two articles suggesting that Ivanka will save us. Amy Willens runs our Ivanka Watch, and we'll ask her whether she agrees. Also, this week we're celebrating the 90th birthday of Harry Belafonte. He's been a central figure behind the scenes of the civil rights movement since the 1960s, and he's done some amazing things on TV as well. Joan Walsh will remind us. But first, how the Democrats can beat Trump on tax reform. The Democrats have spent the last month mostly saying no to Trump, no to his war on immigrants, his threats to Obamacare, and his cabinet picks. Saying no has been essential and also good politics. But now that Trump is beginning to introduce his economic proposals to Congress, it's time for Democrats to challenge Trump with alternative proposals that really would help working class people. This is all the more important because we have an election year next year, 2018, when many Democrats in the Senate and the House are facing strong challenges. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of The American Prospect, and he's a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page and other publications. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Trump proposed a federal budget that dramatically increases defense-related spending by 10%, $54 billion, while cutting other federal programs. The proposed cuts are drastic enough so that he can keep his promise to leave Social Security and Medicare alone. $50 billion more for the military. Is that why working-class uh, whites voted for Trump? Not at all. I, I think... Uh in a sort of paradoxical way, uh, if anything, it was Trump's uh, quasi-semi-demi-isolationism in, in terms of foreign policy that appealed to them. Uh, everyone rhetorically, I'm sure among his voters, likes the idea of a strong United States. But if you look at you know what issue mattered to you most in polls, including the exit polls, the size of the military was nowhere to be found. So I think that's really not what he was uh, elected on. I, in, in some ways, I think this is merely a justification for cutting domestic spending, which uh, is, is near and dear to hardcore Republicans' hearts. It's not entirely clear to me it's near and dear to working class voters who in the past have voted Democratic and this time voted for Trump. It's not clear to me that it's near and dear to their hearts. But really, that part of, of Trumpism is the Republican orthodoxy part. So how should Democrats respond to these uh, economic proposals? Well, first of all, as uh, Stan Collender at Budget Watch in D.C. has noted, it's not clear you can actually do this under the sequester agreements uh, that Congress passed during a, uh, a p particular impasse on budgets uh, during the Obama presidency. So th this could get complicated because he might need Congress to repeal that, which is separate from passing budgets, which means it's something that the Democrats could filibuster. So that's the first point. The second point is there's a lot in what uh, Trump is proposing now and what he's going to propose, revising corporate taxes. This has been uh, holy writ among Republicans for a long, long time. Supposedly, American corporations pay uh, an astonishingly high tax rate, so they keep their money overseas. Well, I mean, it seems to me that one of 
our problems, and the Democrats have been prey to this too, it's, it, it, they just need a kind of intellectual and political breakthrough on this, is that we silo, we, we, we keep the issue of corporate tax reform separate from other economic issues like uh, economic inequality. And uh, there's no good reason why that should be. Why shouldn't there be a sliding scale that taxes corporations lower if, let's say, their CEO makes less than 100 times what their median worker makes. I mean, right now, CEOs make, on average, about 300 times what their median workers make, and that's up from 20 times in the 1960s, when the economy was actually in pretty good shape in the 1960s, and we had a middle class in those days. So I don't see why they can't, for instance, scale corporate taxes to that. And that's actually uh, been a bill that got a plurality, but not a majority in the California State Senate. And it's something that the city of Portland enacted for business taxes, to my uh, great surprise, because uh, I had written this, uh, a council member there saw what I wrote and said, okay, let's let's go with this. And I thought it was, well, I didn't know that. Uh, it, it seems to me that, you know, there is a populist version of uh, some of the things that are coming down the pike, a left populist version that the Democrats should should embrace. And, you know, if you look at some of the Democratic senators who were up for re-election in 2018, some really good progressive populists running in states with a big white working class uh, like Sherrod Brown in Ohio or Tammy Baldwin uh, in Wisconsin. I think they need this. I mean, a lot of the Democratic turnout in 2018 is going to be driven by uh, progressive voters who are, you know, really riled up and just want to say no. I'm not sure that's going to be sufficient in in some states. And uh, so politically, I think that embracing policies like this is actually important uh, for the Democrats, and and, and particularly in those states to pick up some House districts, because I think there's a real chance the Democrats could retake the House in 2018, which would make a huge difference and a huge impediment uh, to Trumpism. Sherrod Brown in Ohio, Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, Ohio and Wisconsin, how did they vote on November 8th? Yeah, that's why I raised this. Uh, Ohio has pretty much clearly shifted uh, to the right. And Ohio has, uh, among the classic industrial states of the United States, the largest percentage of white working class voters. So I think it's really important for the Dems to have some kind of populist economic program that appeals to them. Uh, and, of course, Wisconsin was narrowly carried by, uh, by Trump as well the trillion-dollar infrastructure plan that Trump had promised during the campaign. What, what happened to that? Well, it's, uh, it's in the works. You know, it, it's kind of you're going on virgin ground, as it were, when you propose doing this with the private sector. It's, it's never been clear to me or a lot of other people who follow this stuff much more closely than I what private sector company is going to step forward to rebuild the water system in Flint, Michigan, given Flint, Michigan's ability to, uh, uh, to pay for this stuff since it's a totally impoverished city, or repave the roads in downtown Cleveland, or you name it. I mean, unless they can put a toll road up in, a, uh, in an area where there are a substantial number of middle class and up voters, I don't know what the percentage is for doing this in the, in the private sector. But, I mean, there's clearly a need there. And given the low interest rates, this would be a great time for the government just to... Uh, to float some bonds or appropriate some funds. So we'll see what happens. Trump's proposal for a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan, as I recall, he just sort of pulled that number out of his hat, I think we call it. 
or his hairpiece. Yes, <laughs> he, he he did. And there's that, but there's a lot of stuff he uh, he has advocated that he has pulled out of some place. Uh, so uh, the the imprecision and impulsiveness is. Uh, I think part of what you get when you get Trump. And so can we support, can the Democrats support a trillion dollar uh, plan and confront Trump with that and argue for it? In fact, the Democrats have actually uh, proposed a plan. The thing is, I'm not sure how much publicity they can get for this, how much traction they can get for this. The reason I suggested the tax reform stuff is that's coming down the pike anyway. Yeah. So, there's, so there's going to be a vote. There's going to be a fight. Uh, and, and I think that's uh, just in terms of visibility, perhaps uh, a better issue. God knows the American people understand that the uh, American infrastructure uh, in some ways uh, really ain't what it used to be and needs fixing. So it's a good issue, and the more the Democrats can do to, to, to claim it, you know, the better. Now, of course, they've been, you know, Obama was putting forth proposals throughout his, his eight years as president, which the congressional Republicans were continually shooting down. Uh, so th- I think th- th- this is a ball that's in the air, and we'll have to see where it goes. You talked about the possibility of the Democrats retaking the House. Uh, We record our show here in Los Angeles. You and I are in Los Angeles at this moment. And we have noted that there are four Republican House seats in Orange County districts that Hillary Clinton carried on November 8th. These seem potentially uh, flippable, don't you think? Uh, I do. I actually, I've, I've been out here in Los Angeles for uh, a little while from D.C., and I've been down in Orange County and going to some meetings of some uh, indignant progressive voters in those districts. One thing that actually makes very clear that the Republicans are running scared is the position of Darrell Issa, who holds one of those four districts and who suddenly, actually on Bill Maher's show uh, last Friday night, suggested that we really should appoint a special prosecutor to investigate the Trump-Russia ties, not uh, let Jeff Sessions in the Justice Department control the investigation. That's that's a pretty good illustration of uh, of, of a political tactic called running scary. Uh, that's, that, that's what Isa, I think, really kind of personified perfectly and has, has continued to double down on, on this position. And there are three other districts in, in Orange County that are among the seven in California held by Republicans that uh, Hillary Clinton actually carried. And of course, Hillary Clinton carried Orange County, which was in many ways the birthplace of the New Right, the Goldwater Movement, and so on. The first time since 1936 exactly. a Democrat has exactly. carried Orange County. The first County. time since Franklin Roosevelt carried everything in his first re-election campaign. So the demographics and the times they are changing, and, and based on my, the time I spent uh, with some folks in Orange County uh, in the last several days, I would say there is, as there is across the nation, a really riled up and diverse base of people. They were out door knocking uh, last weekend uh, uh, on uh, on Democratic and other doors in one of these districts. And, you know, this is uh, historically a little early, and it just shows you how much energy there is. The Democrats have a supermajority in the California legislature. California, by far the biggest state by itself, it would be the fifth or sixth or something largest economy in the world. What opportunities do you see for the California legislature to set standards for uh, what Democrats could do as an alternative to Trumpism? Well, a lot. I mean, there are only six states in the country that have really wall-to-wall 
democratic uh, political control in which the Democrats control both houses of the legislature and the governor's office. And they're all small states except California, which is anything but. So, for instance, uh, Trump is going to present his, uh, his budget. Uh, he is going to cut taxes on the very wealthy. And if he can get away with it, uh, cut services that uh, the non-very wealthy uh, actually need to, uh, to thrive and survive. So there's no reason why the California legislature couldn't calculate how much the wealthiest 1% or 2% of Californians have saved on their tax cuts from Donald Trump and raise their rates on state taxes to get an equivalent amount and spend that money on the services in California that Donald Trump has cut. Uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter uh, whose budget is, uh, is getting the funds and funding the services so long as human needs are met. So I think there's a real, a real possibility to do that. Last question. Last weekend, Thomas Perez defeated Keith Ellison, our man, for chair of the Democratic National Committee. What can you tell us about Perez and where do you think we're going now? Well, I actually know both Keith Ellison and Tom Perez, and this was an election in which the difference between the two candidates really wasn't very much at all. Uh, Tom Perez is the most progressive, best labor secretary since Francis Perkins under under Franklin Roosevelt. Wow. Responsible for getting uh, the number of people eligible for overtime greatly increased, uh, for requiring uh, higher pay, paid sick days. Uh, and uh, no union-busting activities from federal contractors, an advocate going all over the country for higher minimum wages. A lot of what Perez did really was almost the entirety of the good stuff in, in domestic policy in Obama's second term. Now, that said, the difference between Tom Perez and Keith Ellison was less in their own politics, which are really pretty damn close, and, and more in who supported them and what it symbolized. Uh, I wrote a piece in The Prospect backing Ellison because I said he was a man of the movement and a man of the moment. He sort of personified the upsurge, the real insurgencies that are still with us. I mean, that said, you know, uh, it's not as if people have a really close relationship or dependency on the Democratic National Committee. In in Martin Buber terms, I don't know anyone who has an I-thou relationship <laughs> with the Democratic National Committee. I think you're the uh, first person to yeah, bring I pro- those two I, I probably am. I, I, I don't think Martin Buber has really been uh, invoked in this discussion yet. <laughs> well, uh, we thank you for that. Okay. But so, you know, I mean, there's, there's disappointment, and I share some of it. But really, the energy is at the base right now. What's remarkable right now is less what the party committee can do. And what all of these groups that have sprung up, some of them out of nowhere, since November 9th, are doing. Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. Harold, it's been great to have you on the show. And been great to be here, John. Today's big question, will Ivanka save us? The New York Times has reported that Ivanka and Jared blocked a rollback of LBGT rights and helped to kill a proposed executive order of Donald Trump's that would have killed Obama's policy prohibiting discrimination against LGBT people in government contracts. Now, the New York Times is also reporting that Ivanka might block plans to eliminate the National Endowments for the Arts and the Humanities. For comments, we turn to our key Ivanka watcher, 
Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She wrote the cover story on Ivanka last week in the magazine. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Politico, and lots more. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And she also teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you. Never did I think I would be reduced in a long <laughs> career to an Ivanka Trump watcher. Well, thank you for submitting here. Uh, let's start with Ivanka thwarting her father's plans to end federal protection for gays. Thwart was the word used in the New York Times headline. What we know about this is that the White House released a statement that the president, quote, continues to be respectful and supporting of LGBTQ rights. Are you convinced this was Ivanka's doing? No, I think it must have been a team of people, perhaps even, dare I say it, the president. Maybe the order did not come from the president's mind or what passes for same, but maybe it came from some of his strange advisors who were going to put it in front of him as so many executive orders have been put in front of him for him to happily sign. And uh, someone, perhaps Gary D. Cohen, who's uh, cited very high up in the New York Times story, chairman of the president's National Economic Council and a Democrat, um, was actually the one to first notice that this was about to be signed. But frankly, if this had been signed at this moment in the Trump first 100 days, it would have been a huge, huge big deal, as he would say, without the pronunciation of the H. <laughs> and I think um, that all slightly sane people in the White House must have decided this. I don't see how it's attributed to Ivanka uh, in any sourced way, although it says in good uh, mainstream media way, reports swirled. I don't know what that means. That means gossip to me. I didn't think that's how we reported the news in this country. But this idea that the daughter of the president is going to save us from a world framed by the alt-right ideology is is crazy. How does that happen? Did Caroline Kennedy do that? Did Amy Carter do that? Most daughters, dare I say it, are products of their families. So that just doesn't happen. I don't think she's standing like a roadblock protecting all our values into the future. Well, now the New York Times has published a second Ivanka Will Save Us piece. This one is uh, about reports that the White House is drafting plans to eliminate the National Endowments for the Arts and Humanities. Uh, this report is a bit more tentative. It says Ivanka, quote, could emerge as a key player again. What do you think of this report? Well, I think this is interesting because uh, it's been on the conservative agenda, I wouldn't even call it the alt-right agenda, but on the conservative agenda to get rid of the National Endowment for the Arts for a long time. People don't like it, putting elephant poop on the Virgin Mary and stuff like that, it seems. That only happened once. <laughs> yeah, but that's an example of the outlandishness that people think uh, artists uh, use in their work. So it's not an entirely new idea. I don't, I mean, I find it horrendous, of course, but I think 
it would meet with less craziness than the LGBT thing. And I, I know Ivanka collects apparently some good art. We are we are told in the piece that she quote owns a few significant pieces of art close quote. Uh, how unusual is that among multi-millionaires in Manhattan? It just makes me laugh because I, too, own a few <laughs> significant pieces of Haitian art that cost me like $12. But, of course, everybody, except for Donald Trump, owns a little bit of significant art if you have that much money because that's a thing you have in your living room to show how much money you have. I mean, let's be honest. Ivanka has a lot more acceptable taste than Donald Trump, although it is in a sense, an aspirational kind of taste that she has too. But she's more settled in society. She doesn't feel like an outer borough person. The other evidence that Ivanka may save us, offered by the New York Times, is that she is known, I'm quoting, she is known to attend the ballet and museum events, close quote. How unusual is this in her circle? To me, it, it paints a funny portrait of Trump. Like in New York City, People with money go to the ballet and the Philharmonic. That's what they do. They at least pretend to be interested in the older arts, classical arts, etc. So when it says she has gone to some ballet performances, she probably has a subscription to the New York City Ballet or something. That's not, it doesn't make her an arbiter of culture or mean that she's going to stand up in defense of the NEA. But she might. But what I want to know and what I wonder about is, Will she be heard? Will she be listened to? As she says, my father listens to me depending on the day. And to listen to her is one thing. To obey or be swayed by an argument, I know she's special to him. That's true. But that special? Well, most of this article in the New York Times that's, that suggests that Ivanka may save the NEA there are evidences that she performed in the Nutcracker when she was eight. Did, did you take, take ballet when you were eight? Well, I tried to, but I was from New Jersey. And in my little town, my mother disapproved. My mother was from Manhattan. She disapproved of the ballet school in my town in New Jersey. So I didn't get to take ballet. But Ivanka said, amusingly, she was too tall. She was never really going to be a ballet dancer, but she loved it. And the big story in her book, which I have read, mm. is about uh, Michael Jackson coming to her ballet performance. And it's another story about how awful it is to be famous and have privilege. Like, my dad got Michael Jackson to come to my performance. I'm so embarrassed as an eight-year-old. And she never really got beyond that with the American Ballet Theater. And she always questioned, I love this too, she questioned whether it was her great ballet potential that got her into ABT or possibly her name. But she decided to go with potential. <laughs> and the New York Times does report that the part she had in the Nutcracker, if the, the uh, people who've been in the Nutcracker and the parents of girls who've been in the Nutcracker know what this means, she was in the party scene. Now, the party scene is oh a God. mass scene that dozens of little kids like are being in. being in the chorus, you know? It's not, a, it's not that great, except, of course, it's great to you as a little girl. But what really interests me is that we're having this conversation, John, because, like, this is a diversion, and the arts are a diversion. Uh, of course, LGBT is not a diversion. That's civil rights. But if Ivanka is 
something to watch while the the civilization crumbles. You know, she's something to distract us. And and she's also honing an image, I believe. I mean, I think that's what these stories are really about, is um, a person who wants to, and she's always like this, she wants to walk with the Trump mantle, whatever she believes that to be. You know, you and I might not think that's a good thing, but she, of course, grew up in it, and she thinks it is. She wants to walk with that around her shoulders, but she also wants to say, I can bring in moderates. Mm. I can even bring in Democrats because I really am a Democrat, as Trump was so recently, even less than 10 years ago. Well, I think the striking thing to me here is that the New York Times in the last week has run two pieces suggesting that maybe Ivanka will save us. Would you? I would, might call that grasping at straws. Yeah, it's really sad and paltry. And I think that what's happened is she's like removed herself from her shoe shoe selling and jewelry and schmata's business. And that thing is going down the tubes because of her, her father. Now maybe she's kind of striking back and saying, well, I can do something with this man. You know, I can. But I just think it's a bad way to conduct your politics to hope that the uh, princess regent is going to speak to the king about uh, the executive orders, thank you, Obama, that he's issuing left, right, and center in order to stop him from wrecking our little world in America. There was one other arena in which liberals look to Ivanka to save us, and that was this puzzling business of Donald Trump being so reluctant to come out in, with an open statement that anti-Semitism is a bad thing, that it's not, a, it's not good when dozens of Jewish community centers across the United States receive bomb threats. He somehow couldn't quite bring himself to say that he was against that. And then, wow. and then uh, Ivanka tweeted about this. Her tweet was, and since, let us remember, Ivanka converted to Judaism in order to marry Jared Kushner. Ivanka is a Jew. That's not an easy conversion. You don't just say, I'm Jewish, I'm Jewish, I'm Jewish, the way you do in a divorce proceeding with someone like Jared Kushner. You have to go through a lot to become a new Jew in an Orthodox family. And she did. So liberals, Jews, the New York Times, look to Ivanka to help us, help us get Donald Trump to say anti-Semitism is a bad thing. Here's Ivanka's tweet in response to the questions about threats to Jewish community centers across the United States. Quote, America is a nation built on the principle of religious tolerance. We must protect our houses of worship and religious centers. Hashtag JCC. That is it. Now, I noticed that two things are missing from this, the word Jewish and the word anti-Semitism. Yeah, just like the word Jewish was missing from the Holocaust Remembrance Day tweet of the Trump administration. Again, this is the alt-right being weird and Trump goes along with it. What kind of president is this? He has no no backbone. And, and the kids don't really seem to know anything either. How could she tweet that with Jared standing next to her? He's an Orthodox Jew by birth. He should know better than <laughs> hashtag JCC. But again, here, it's it's a total diversion. The real story is Israel and Palestine. And what Jared Kushner 
is going to do in Israel-Palestine and how Netanyahu has been validated by this administration and the settlements have been validated. I don't care what tweet came out. You know, they're on the side of Israel as a military occupier. And we're talking about, you know, is Ivanka going to say Jew? You have convinced me. The New York Times suggesting that Ivanka will save us is completely wrong and a distraction. Amy Wilentz wrote the cover story about Ivanka in The Nation magazine last week. Amy, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. After we taped that interview, Trump reversed the policy that allowed transgender students to use the restroom of their gender identity, attacking the most vulnerable kids. Reports say the efforts to keep Obama's policy protecting trans kids was led by Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, not by Ivanka. Now it's time to talk about Harry Belafonte. This week, March 1st, was his 90th birthday, and he's been a key figure in the civil rights movement since the 60s. He became a superstar in 1956 with his album Calypso. It was the first million-selling LP by a single artist. Most of his fans did not know about his close relationship with Martin Luther King. During the 60s, he was a key fundraiser for King, especially during the Birmingham campaign of 1963. That's the one that's memorable for the attacks on young marchers with fire hoses and police dogs. And when King himself was arrested and held in that Birmingham jail, Belafonte raised $50,000, which allowed the campaign to continue. In 1964, Belafonte, along with his friend Sidney Poitier, delivered $70,000 in cash stuffed into a doctor's bag to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's Mississippi Freedom Summer Project. They were met by Klansmen who chased them and fired guns at them. In 1965, Belafonte joined the Selma to Montgomery March. In subsequent decades, he opposed the Cuba embargo. He spoke out against the Iraq War. And a couple of weeks ago, he served as honorary co-chair of the Women's March on Washington the day after the Trump inauguration, along with Gloria Steinem and Dolores Huerta. And there was one amazing moment in 1968 when he spent a week as a late-night TV host. For that story, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's a political analyst on MSNBC. She wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? And she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached her today in Austin, Texas. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Happy to be with you. Well, it was almost 50 years ago, February 1968, that The Tonight Show on NBC was turned over for a week of guest hosting by Harry Belafonte. You wrote a wonderful piece about that week for The Nation. First, please set the context. What was going on in in America, in the world, in February 1968? First and foremost, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam had just happened and showed that we were embroiled in uh, an unwinnable war, but that Lyndon Johnson was committed to continuing. Really, it was was a time of incredible unrest, and it was a time when when, uh, people were, you know, uh, folks on the left 
black nationalists were really tired of Dr. King's, you know, nonviolence strategy. And Lyndon Johnson was uh, about a month, month and a half away from declaring that he wasn't going to run again because of Vietnam and the Vietnam protests. So it was a time of, of real fear on, on both sides, I think. I think liberals, too, felt that the country was coming apart. So NBC, Johnny Carson asked, Belafonte had been on the show, you know, regularly since its inception, and Johnny Carson was taking a vacation and asked him if he would host, and he said no, he just didn't think he was, you know, the right, the right fit. But he was pressured by NBC to do it, that it was really thought of as a kind of a move to bring us together, basically. Uh, and he, was, he negotiated to get control of his guest list, although they had to see it, but couldn't, couldn't reject anybody. Of course, he wasn't going to do a monologue. He wasn't a comedian. Uh, so he sang every night. You know, it was really one of these kind of idealistic things that you wonder how it could happen today or what would it re represent to happen today. His two biggest guests, at, at least in retrospect, were Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Uh, let's start with Bobby Kennedy. What was he like on TV that spring of 1968? He was, had just declared that he would not run for president. Of course, he reversed himself about six weeks later. He was very anxious, edgy, kind of pessimistic, really wrestling with the limits of American power, uh, of what, what Vietnam was showing us, the limits of the war on poverty. And I didn't see the Bobby Kennedy that I expected or that I know from seeing his speeches over the years. I, I saw a much more hesitant, pained, uncertain, uh, introspective kind of Bobby Kennedy who talked about urban po poverty and visiting Indian reservations and, and, you know, Negro slums and just really was, was disheartened by the fact that he, he saw us retreating on the war on poverty even in February of 68. He's pessimistic and, and kind of sad. It's, very, it's a very interesting thing to watch. So Bobby Kennedy is pessimistic and sad on The Tonight Show with Harry Belafonte in February 1968. What about Martin Luther King? He's more uplifting, he's, uh, but he's beset uh, with his own struggles, which he doesn't really talk about the internal struggles of his movement. But I, I, in this piece, I kind of track where he was the few days before. He has decided at this point uh, that that. We got voting rights. It's great. We got, we got the Civil Rights Act. That's great. It's really important things. But that without economic rights, without economic, uh, you know, justice, black people really can't advance the way they need to. Uh, and so this is the time when he began preparing the Poor People's Campaign, the Poor People's March. And uh, that was a really controversial move. His, his, you know, older friends in the civil rights movement were like, why are we moving on to this? The young uh, black nationalist Stokely Carmichael, who was then running uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which you mentioned earlier, Stokely was was incensed that King had made a call for a multiracial Poor People's March and acknowledged that there were poor Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Appalachian whites, Indian, you know, American Indians, and he wanted us all to band together. Uh, and Stokely thought that was complete completely the wrong thing to do. So he was having to convince the various wings of his own movement that he was doing the right thing and, and honestly didn't have that much support. 
but he makes a very clear pitch for it in this half-hour conversation with Belafonte. And Belafonte really draws him out on why it's necessary. He supported that, too. Of course, he had no doubts about it. But, you know, the other thing that's so amazing is in our age is we, you know, the way we see ourselves consuming media. And, I, you know, I do TV as part of my job. The length, the depth to which they would go about these complicated issues was just astonishing. You know, and you really feel like you're eavesdropping on a private conversation. It's not, it, neither of them feels like a, like a persona or they're not speaking in sound bites. It's not easy. They're not trying to pitch something to us in a, in a kind of like a product. It's just, this is where the country is and this is what we need to do. And Kennedy's not sure we can do it. And King is more optimistic because that's his way. It was, it was very chilling and moving, I really felt like I found this, uh, you know, wandered into this alternative universe. The show wasn't all politics. Who else did Belafonte put on the air during his week hosting the Tonight Show? Oh, it was a real, it was a really amazing mix. It was culture. It was uh, Wilt Chamberlain and Zero Mostel. Zero Mostel jumps on a couch on the infamous Johnny Carson couch to greet Wilt Chamberlain because he was so short and Wilt was so tall. (laughs) Lena Horne, Buffy St. Marie, Melina Mercury, uh, Marianne Moore, who was our poet laureate at the time. When was the last time we had a poet on late night television? It was comedy. It was song. It was art. Paul Newman came on and played his trombone. It It was really astonishing. February 1968, Today, to us, that's just a couple of months before the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King and and then the assassination of, of Bobby Kennedy. Looking back on this, it means something very different from what it meant at the time. I wonder, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, there's a really chilling moment where Harry Belafonte asked Dr. King, what do you have in store for us this summer? And the, the audience laughs, and King says, well, I guess I should start with the spring, and talks about the Poor People's Campaign, but it's really eerie because he didn't live to see the summer. Yeah. It's, it's just heartbreaking uh, to see these men so immersed in the, the tumult of the time and you know, knowing their lives were cut short. I also felt, though, I, I've spent my adult life thinking if they had lived, everything would have been really different. And maybe that would have been true, John. But what I saw in their struggles, their grappling with the complexity of social change and civil rights uh, and economic justice work, that maybe it wouldn't have been that different. They didn't have the answers. They had a way of working toward answers that was predicated on bringing people together, and that was invaluable. But things were falling apart, and I, I think that one, one of the things that I came away from the, these two interviews with is that it was never going to be easy. It wasn't just a matter of these two men would have led us into the promised land. I'm sure we would be better off if they'd lived, but it wasn't like they could magically solve the problems that beset us now. Um, I just think that, you know, we're going to be continuing to work on this stuff for hundreds of years. I know that sounds so so pessimistic, but there's just some way that that, that uh, solution to our racial problems continues to elude us. And uh, 
they saw they saw this period of transformation and opportunity. They saw the door closing. Well, of course, Kennedy and King are, are gone, but Harry Belafonte is still with us. I wonder if you have, have any closing thoughts about him. Well, he's just such a tremendous example of, of continuing to fight and also continuing to bet on the future. He talks uh, in, in other places, not so much to me, about going through some real depression about, of course, the loss of his friends, the personal loss, but also what happened to the movement and where is everybody and are, are the young people too complacent. And then he just set out to find young people uh, and, and work with young people. So from negotiating gang truces in the 90s to working with Black Lives Matter uh, advocates in the last few years, he's really gone out and searched for the, the, the pulse of activism and, and really tried to give any kind of support he can, whether, you know, advice or, or still financial support. So he, he's really an example of somebody who did not go away, did not conclude uh, that we can't do anything about this. Uh, the movement is over. He continues to go where the movement is. Uh, and I think that's really, should be really inspiring to all of us. Harry Belafonte's 90th birthday was March 1st. We all want to say thank you, Harry Belafonte, for a lifetime of political activism and happy birthday. Joan Walsh wrote about him a wonderful piece. You can read it at thenation.com. Joan, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books, and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, by Ernesto Orellano, with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.